0: This podcast is sponsored by eBookIt.com, self-publishing solutions for the independent author and small press. Visit us today at eBookIt.com. Welcome to the Toastmasters podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin. And I'm Ryan Levesque. Ryan, do you ever feel that despite your qualifications and accomplishments, You still doubt your abilities and feel like a fraud. If you do, you're not alone and just might be afflicted with something called imposter syndrome. Our guest today is no imposter, even if he might admit to feeling like one from time to time. He'll be demystifying this often misunderstood phenomenon and sharing ideas on how to approach it. Ryan, who are we speaking with today? Greg, today we
1: are speaking with Kevin Coakley, PhD. Dr. Coakley is a professor and Department of Educational Psychology chair at the University of Texas at Austin. He's a leading expert on imposter phenomenon. Dr. Coakley is quoted several times in a July 2022 article in the Toastmaster magazine about imposter syndrome. The article is called A Surprising Truth Behind High Achievers. Also of note, Dr. Coakley will be presenting at the Toastmasters International 2022 International Convention this August in Nashville, Tennessee. The topic of his presentation, the phenomenon of imposter syndrome and mental health. Dr. Kevin Coakley,
0: welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me. Before we get into our interview, Dr. Coakley, I'm just curious, perhaps some people may not be familiar with the term imposter syndrome. In fact, I've been reading in preparation for this interview. Some say it's it's not really a syndrome. Is it a disorder? Is it simply intellectual self-doubt? Perhaps you could
2: just share with us a little bit about what it really is. Well, thank you, um, both for having me. I, I guess the first thing that I would say is that the, the terminology that I prefer to use is not the imposter syndrome, but rather it is the imposter phenomenon, which is the original terminology that was used when the, the idea was created. But, but the idea behind it is essentially, um, individuals who are, you know, very sort of competent, very intelligent, very accomplished, who nevertheless feel Intellectually fraudulent. Um, in other words, these are individuals who um, experience severe self-doubt in spite of the fact that their accomplishments would suggest otherwise. Um, they believe that, you know, if you could somehow peer within the windows of their soul and look inside them, you would see that that the individual that they sort of portray themselves as in terms of being very sort of self-confident, very self-assured, very you know, competent is really not that person at all, that they are essentially sort of fooling people and they harbor these sort of self-doubts about their own competence.
1: Dr. Coakley, would imposter phenomenon be synonymous with another term that we've heard quite a bit over the years, which is an inferiority complex?
2: That is an interesting question. Um, certainly i could see you know you know some ways in which those terms overlap um of course the inferiority complex is is not necessarily a a real sort of um sort of psychological construct in the sense that you know we don't have any sort of uh, as as far as I'm as far as I know, any sort of inferiority complex scales that that would sort of measure one's feelings of inferiority. But but, yeah, I could see ways in which individuals would have some overlap, but I wouldn't equate the two the way that I understand inferiority complex. People may have a different sort of understanding, but I understand it as essentially individuals just believing themselves to be essentially inferior to all other people um, in ways big and small. That's sort of deeply held beliefs about one's sense of inferiority. While that certainly can overlap, I think, with feelings of sort of self-doubt and imposterism, I don't necessarily see the two being synonymous. So I would be careful about sort of equating the two. Thank you very much for for sharing that because I think myself I was thinking
0: exactly the same thing that there was some sort of inferiority complex. So thanks for clearing that up. So Dr. Coakley, you yourself experienced this imposter phenomenon as an assistant professor, and it's mentioned in the magazine article. But you also mentioned in the article is that at the time you didn't actually know what it was. So for you, I'm curious, what did that look
2: like, and what did you do to overcome it? So when I finished my PhD, um, it was several years ago, uh, 1998. And I was, you know, still relatively young. I think I was about 29 years old. And I accepted my first academic position at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Well, if if you know anything about academic positions, they are incredibly difficult to obtain, especially at a research-oriented school, uh, very competitive. And you typically need to have A lot of published articles and research to to get those sort of jobs. Well, at that time, I had a more modest looking um, curriculum vitae. I had, you know, I think maybe one published article. Some research experience, but but not as much as you would typically expect someone to have who who would obtain a tenure track position. You know, when I started my position, I remember sort of looking around, you know, walking the hallways of the psychology department and seeing all of these sort of published articles by my colleagues. And they were quite impressive. I was overcome with, you know, feelings of now what I understand to be um, sort of feelings of imposterism. But I remember just sort of feeling very insecure and feeling all sorts of self doubt about do I really belong here? Can I really do this? Am I just sort of fooling people? And it really was quite anxiety provoking, you know, to sort of go through those feelings. I was single. I did not have a family. I essentially, you know, worked my butt off. I mean i I really just became immersed in work. Um, I i worked, you know, of course, you know, my, during the day, you know, teaching and meetings and, 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 and writing, but I spent time in the evenings. I worked during the weekends. When people talk about having a, a, you know, a 40 hour week, that was not, you know, sort of my experience. I worked well over 40 hours. Um, and I just really threw myself into trying to, to do as much as I could to try to prove myself worthy of being, you know, a, a professor. And so The way that I overcame it. And in fact, you know, you you'll hear people like Michelle Obama, who when asked the same sort of question, she essentially gave the same answer. She talked about sort of, you know, how hard she had to work to try to overcome her feelings of imposterism. And that's exactly what I did. I would say that, you know, I did so in a way that might not necessarily be the most healthy in terms of focusing so much on work and engaging in very little self-care. And that's not necessarily the way that I would recommend people to sort of try to deal with their feelings of imposterism. But for me at that time, that's that was essentially what I did, because I I felt like I had to do it in order to to survive.
0: So you didn't work harder to be better. You worked harder to have the perception,
2: your own perception that you were better. That certainly was part of what I was doing. Yes.
1: Interesting. And of course, I'm so tempted now to shift into what are some of the healthy ways of dealing with imposterism, but we're going to table that for a little bit later in the discussion. Uh, Dr. Coakley, I'd like to know what your role in experiencing deeply, personally, this feeling of imposterism, what role did that play in your decision to eventually make it a topic of your academic research?
2: It's interesting. Um for researchers, you know, oftentimes, you know, you'll hear this phrase used in the academy. We call it me search. And it's the idea behind <laughs> it is, you know, we engage in research that really is nothing more than an extent an extension and a reflection of our own sort of personal issues that we're dealing with. And so certainly I think part of that was at play with with my interest. The truth is, is that I came across this topic rather serendipitously. I remember I was I was doing a, a literature review for some other paper for for the audience. My research, you know, really involves looking at uh, African American students and students of color and their experiences um, negotiating uh, predominantly white educational spaces. Um, I'm always interested in how students are able to not only sort of survive, but thrive in those spaces. And when I I was doing a literature review and I, I happened to come across an article that referenced this idea of the imposter phenomenon. And it was not something that I was familiar with. And so when I came across it, I said, oh, this this sounds interesting. And so I started to read the article. And as I started to read it, I I immediately became um, excited because I realized that it was so relevant to the work that I was already doing. And in fact, it was also relevant to my own personal experiences. And so it was through that sort of serendipitous finding of the article that sort of referenced this imposter phenomenon, that I then decided to pursue it as a research area of my own. And the rest, as they say, is is history.
0: Wow. So now that you've done your your extensive research, you've experienced it personally, I'm really curious, in in what other ways does the imposter phenomenon affect other
2: people's lives? How does it manifest? What does it look like? Oh, that is a a, a good question. I, I, I think the most obvious way that it manifests is... Just the internal sort of dialogue that people have with themselves about we refer to it as self-talk, the things that we say to ourselves um, regarding trying to achieve certain things and, and, you know, asking ourselves, you know, can we do this? Am I just really sort of putting on airs and just sort of fooling people? I mean, so we we have these sort of self-doubts that manifest and self-talk that we engage in. I think in in terms of sort of how it manifests with other people, that, that is a really good question. And I think, you know, one of the most obvious examples that I can think of is in the ways in which people sometimes um, engage in um, behaviors where they, they diminish themselves, you know, in the face of, you know, other people, it almost looks as though people are, you know, sort of engaging in behaviors or, 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 saying things that that would appear to make one less competent than one is I, I guess another way of putting it is just perpetually saying things that would really make one look less co- accomplished less competent than what one really you know sort of is it's it's a way of diminishing oneself uh, so that people don't have such high expectations of you, even though you've sort of proven yourself to be worthy of the expectations and the positive things that people have said and, and, and believe about you.
1: We actually see this in Toastmasters all the time. and It's something that we work with members to try to dissuade them from doing, but people will get up and they will be in front of the room about to give a speech and say something like, well, I just want to let you know, I didn't really have a lot of time to work on this speech. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, work was really busy today, so this isn't going to be, you know, my best work, or they'll say things like that to try to lower the audience's expectations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we, we teach members is even if something goes wrong, not to apologize because it's just going to, it's going to bring
0: attention to the technical mm-hmm.
1: error or mistake. That's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was thinking of something a little more extreme in terms of trying to diffuse and try to bring down the, the expectation while doing research. And I've heard this in the past as well is, Uh, former Beatle, Paul McCartney, right? He's been quoted as being, as feeling like a fraud. And I don't know if either one of you watched the Beatles get back the three part series that they just recently put on about, let it be George Harrison. I remember him sitting there and he's feeling that, what did he say? He said something that something to the effect of, he felt that his guitar playing was not up to snuff because he was comparing himself to Eric Clapton at the time. And we all know what a phenomenal guitarist George Harrison is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yes. (laughs) Great example.
0: So leading to that, so obviously Ryan mentioned Toastmasters. I mentioned former Beatles. I'm just wondering, Dr. Coakley, are there certain traits or characteristics that can determine who's more likely to fall victim to this imposter phenomenon?
2: Again, another very good question. One of the things that you sort of see with people who are especially vulnerable to feeling like an imposter is that they tend to be the people who are the higher achievers. In other words, I don't know that you necessarily see the same level of imposterism amongst people who, who haven't already highly achieved or who aren't already sort of seen as being very intelligent, very competent, very accomplished. So if you find yourself among those people who people who are sort of seen as very accomplished and very sort of competent, I think that makes you particularly vulnerable to feeling like an imposter. I mean, so that is probably an, an obvious example. The, the other, oh, but the other sort of, I guess, psychological trait, and I've sort of looked at this in my own research, that you see amongst many individuals who feel like imposters is the trait of sort of perfectionism. Perfectionism, you know, psychologically speaking, it can be good or it can be bad. We we refer to the bad versions of it as maladaptive perfectionism. And what that essentially means is people who are unduly unrealistically perfectionistic, you know, to the point where you know you hold yourself to such a high standard that you can't possibly achieve the lofty standards that you set for yourself. And it's that maladaptive perfectionism trait That makes people particularly vulnerable to feeling like an imposter. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. It's like the student who was always getting straight A's and gets a B and felt like he or she failed. Right. (laughs) Got it.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Dr. Coakley, you eloquently laid out for us at the outset of the interview, I'll say ended the misnomer of there being something called imposter syndrome in favor of this term imposter phenomenon. While it may not be a syndrome, it certainly is, as we just said, a phenomenon and one Mm -hmm. that has real impact on people's lives. At this point, I would like to ask you to share with us some practical ways of managing or treating this phenomenon that
2: people have found helpful. Another good question. And, and this is something that I will hopefully address, you know, in my, my talk at the convention. But, but one of the, and you know, so I'm a psychologist and, and one of the suggestions that we give people is to be very intentional about documenting your successes. Now, why is this important? Well, too often people who experience imposter feelings, they conveniently sort of forget or minimize those examples of of successes that they experienced during the course of a day, during the course of a week. And so sometimes you you have to be told to be very intentional and to actually document every time that you did something that was great, where you received an acknowledgement, where you did something that is, is laudatory, write it down, document it, and then revisit that, maybe revisit it weekly, maybe revisit it biweekly so that you can see, oh, you know what? I'm actually doing okay. I'm, I'm actually very good at what I do. I've actually accomplished some things. So just being intentional and systematic and documenting your successes and then revisiting that periodically. Again, it's a reminder that the things that we sometimes conveniently, you know, forget or minimize, we need to be reminded of. And so that's one way of, of, of being able to do that. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's and as you're sharing this example or this strategy, Dr. Coakley, I keep thinking of some of the self-talk that I catch myself playing when I get some praise or some good feedback for something. And it's this sentence that usually begins with something like, oh, that was just dot, dot, dot like oh well that was or that was nothing special that was i i just got lucky or i just happened to have a good idea at the time because i had just i don't know read a book on a similar topic or you know constantly downplaying these successes and instead of thinking maybe i do have something of value (laughs) to offer a little bit of my personal experience
2: yeah, no, that happens, you know, more frequently than than you would, you know, probably care to believe. I, another suggestion, and it's somewhat related to what I just said, is just sort of owning your accomplishments. Now, and what do I mean by that? Sometimes I, I think that we, we, we have been socialized to not really sort of talk about or be proud of the things that we've done. Um, we, you know, we don't because we don't want to be seen as being braggadocious, as it you know, as being sort of egomaniacal. We sometimes just minimize those things that we've done here. We're saying, look, own your accomplishments. It's, it's okay to be proud of what you've done and you can do that. You can own your accomplishments in a way that is not sort of being braggadocious that is not being off-putting, but it's just simply acknowledging, you know, I did something, you know, really good here, really, Impressive here, and I need to be proud of that. So, so owning your accomplishments is is another strategy that that we would sort of suggest. Uh, And I'll I'll leave you with one more, um, and that is sort of talking to someone about it. and And I don't just mean talking to a professional. I mean, obviously, you know, I would always sort of recommend seeking treatment for mental health, and that's you know goes without saying. But but talking to people, you know, talking to a friend, talking to a colleague, who you might be surprised may have felt the exact same way or maybe feeling the exact same way as you. Because too often people who have imposter feelings are suffering in silence and they don't want to tell people or share this vulnerability with people. You may find that in talking to a friend or a colleague that they have either, either felt the way that you're feeling or they are currently feeling the way that you're feeling. It's always good to be able to kind of share this with other people.
0: I see a lot of these things you're sharing also have very similar elements in terms of developing and maintaining your own self-confidence. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In the, in the article, there's actually a sidebar on the tips of overcoming this imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. And this is one that you'd made reference to. And one of them is the offer of the tip of being transparent. Can
2: you maybe explain a little bit more about that or just elaborate on? Sure. I'm thinking especially – Sort of about the types of environments where uh, we work, where the you know there's so much pressure you know to to excel and and to not make mistakes, and when you're in that sort of environment, this advice is is actually really almost more for you know the people who are supervisors who who help establish the 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 culture of these spaces that we work in being transparent about your humanness and and what I mean and what I mean by that is you're not perfect you should Be okay with being transparent about the times when you've made mistakes, about the times when you've not done something as well as you could have, and letting people know it's okay to talk about that. It's okay to kind of share that with people. Um, Being transparent about your imperfections, because in doing so, it makes people. Hopefully, it will make people feel more comfortable. in doing the same thing. And to me, it ultimately will lead to to the creation of a healthier work environment. Super. Thus far, we've focused mostly on the negative or
1: debilitating aspects of the imposter phenomenon. Dr. Coakley, are there any positives that are embedded in this phenomenon that you might be able
2: to extract for us? I'm really cautious about framing it as, as positives. Although I, I I will say this, that there is some evidence to suggest that, and I'm speaking, I'm thinking about sort of, you know, w- within the context of either school or, I guess, you know, sort of work environment. There's some evidence to, to suggest that individuals who experience imposter feelings can sometimes, you know, end up th- Doing extremely well, like, you know, performing at a very, very high level, whether you are know, talking about students in a school context, you know, sort of making very good grades and doing very well on tests or, you know, a professional in a work environment who you know, ends up just being, you know, incredibly good at what they're doing because of just the, the, the concerns about um, wanting to to be perfect and wanting to sort of present oneself as being incredibly competent. So the, the amount of work and effort that can go into sort of that self-presentation that's driven by imposterism can, in some instances, lead to what would appear to be sort of positive outcomes. But, but I all, always caution people that that comes at a cost, and the cost is to one's uh, mental health and, in some instances, physical health. Um, you know, in other words, you work so hard to sort of be able to sort of be presented as this incredibly, you know, accomplished, competent person that it can lead, you know, in, in more extreme cases to a diminished mental health and, and, and physical health. So I always want to make sure to sort of say that to people.
0: Yeah, which could have happened in your own situation where all of a sudden you're working twice as hard just to try to get that recognition or to be perceived as as belonging there. That's right. Yeah. I'm just curious, Dr. Coakley, is this imposter phenomenon, is it something that will go away and gets better with time? Or is it something that might just pop up depending on your circumstance?
2: Well, you know, and I think this is something that we – a question where we need to have a lot more research. I'm I'm someone who is – You know, I'm somewhat of an empiricist, so I don't like saying things that can't be supported with data. I can give you my general impressions, which is somewhat supported by some data that I have, and which is that I, I, I think there's some evidence that feelings of imposterism slowly diminish over time as one gets more experience on a job or, you know, whatever, you know, the setting that that can result in. Increased feelings of confidence and, and, and feeling efficacious about one's ability to, to do well. So, so there is some reason to believe that it, it can start to diminish over time. Does it ever completely subside and, and, and sort of go away? I, I don't think that's the case. Only in, you know, I mean, every once in a while, um, you might come across a person who has never, ever felt like an imposter and, and is baffled when you ask the question. But whenever I sort of, You know, and I'm going to do this actually at the conference. I hope I'm not giving away all of my goodies. But whenever you ask people, you know, most people will indicate that they have felt like an apostate at some point in time. And you see that across different developmental sort of stages. In, In other words, you know, people across ages, you know, whether it's young or sort of, you know, you know, midlife or sort of older, you know, most people will indicate that they have experienced Feelings of imposters at some point, but I do believe that those feelings are probably more prevalent when you are sort of younger and or when you are sort of not as seasoned compared to those individuals who are more seasoned.
0: Oh, I, I'm a little seasoned, and I still get it once in a
2: while. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. I can relate, which is why i I would not. <laughs> I preface it by saying, you know, I, I, I'm always hesitant to say that without like a lot of data. So these are like general impressions that are subject to corrections. <laughs> right. Right.
0: I guess I'm just a statistic, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm just kidding. No, this, uh, Dr. Coakley, this has been so enlightening. I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about a lot of the, a lot of things that have happened in my life and some of the stories that you shared. That I'm. Totally looking forward to your presentation at the upcoming international convention. I'm sure obviously you're going to, be, I'm sure mm-hmm. going to be elaborating on a lot of this. And folks, if you enjoyed this episode, please take the time and share it with your friends. Let them know about Dr. Coakley. Let them know about the upcoming convention and also have them read the article in the upcoming issue of the Toastmaster magazine.
1: And Dr. Coakley, before we let you go, what is the best way for listeners to
2: connect with you online? Right now... My institutional email address at the University of Texas at Austin is kcoakley, that's C-O-K-L-E-Y, at austin.utexas.edu. That email will be good right up until probably September 1, at which point I will be a professor at the University of Michigan. That email address will be at Umich, that's U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U.
0: Well, congratulations on that. And we'll certainly put both of those email addresses in the show notes. All right. Thank you. And you can hear more from Dr. Kevin
1: Coakley at the Toastmasters International Convention in Nashville, Tennessee,
0: this August. That's August 17th through 20th. Hope you can make it. You'll be able to see him there either in person or virtually. Either way, make sure you catch it. Dr. Kevin Coakley, thanks again for coming on the show today.
2: All right. Thank you for having me.
0: Isn't it about time you published that book you've been thinking about? We can help with that. At ebookit.com, we've been providing authors and small presses with ebook publishing services since 2010. Visit us today at ebookit.com and let us know how we can help you.